right, good morning, good morning. It's uh, good to see everybody here this morning. And uh, as we said, we're going to be finishing up our series today on uh, gospel wisdom and uh, public persona is what we're going to talk about. So I, I, uh, I'm going to just take the easy question and ask, do we have any Dallas Cowboys fans in the room? Oh, that's more than what I thought. Oh, we got a boo. Look, I'm a Saints fan. Everybody hates the Cowboys. Even if it was one person here who's a Cowboys fan, it would probably be just as loud, right? Uh, because that's just how Cowboys fans are. So uh, once upon a time, the city of Dallas had a professional football team. I'll just, no, I'm kidding. 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 All right. I just, and half the room just left. I understand. Uh, that's coming from a Saints fan. Uh, but they had a great cornerback by the name of Deion Sanders. And Deion Sanders' personal motto is, you look good, if you look good, you feel good. You feel good, you play good. You play good, they pay good. They pay good, you live good. You live good, then you thank God for all that is good. And so that's wisdom from Deion Sanders. And so I, this coming football season, I'm going to go ahead and uh, cash in on that, especially you guys that cheered. I'm going to make a hoodie, and I'll put that on there. And you can buy it for five easy payments of 21 bucks. okay? So I'll have that. I know who to target for my Christmas you know, shindig this year. So um, anyway, but that, so that's Deion Sanders. Daniel Hammermesh is a professor at UT Austin, and he wrote a book called Beauty Pays. Why Attractive People Are More Successful. And since the mid-90s, he has studied the impact on beauty and income. And here's some of the things that he found. A handsome man is poised to make 13% more during his career than a looks-challenged. Isn't that nice? A looks-challenged <laughs> peer. <laughs> okay. Attractive people are more likely to be hired during a recession. Homely quarterbacks earn 12% less than their easy-on-the-eyes rivals. You know this. It's like a good-looking quarterback. And all my Cowboys fans are like, yeah, Aikman, man. You know, like, okay. But they also found that there are even studies suggesting, and I'm very cautious about throwing this out, that every dollar spent on cosmetic products, only four cents returns as salary, which makes lipstick a truly abysmal investment, Okay. But there's a flip side to this. And so we have uh, Deion Sanders in Dallas, and we, we got Daniel Hammersmith and UT Austin. And there's a flip side to this. A professor at Rice said this, that the unbecoming may actually have an advantage, and they may actually profit from their looks. People, because people tend to expect less from good-looking people, and when they actually perform, they're perceived as overachieving. Like, that makes me feel good about myself. <laughs> that makes me feel really good about myself here. Because if you're an attractive person, people have high expectations, you don't do a good job, then you take a hit financially. And I read this, and the obvious fact that these people are all from Texas, so we can trust them. And I now know why I'm broke and why it was so hard for me to get a job in the last recession. The whole time I thought it was because I'm smart, when actually it's because I'm, uh, what, what did he say? Uh, looks challenged peer. So I'll be darned, I might actually be smart now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is, but that makes me feel better. But what is it about us that we feel sometimes more often than not that we have to look better than what we truly are? What is it about us? 
What is it about us that we feel like so often, sometimes more so than others, sometimes you get in a season of your life and I was like, I don't care what anybody thinks, you know, forget the world. And then it's like, hey dude, your top button's undone. Oh man, just leave me alone. You know, like sometimes you go, you go that way I and mean, you might be in a season of, of life where you're like, who, who cares what people think? But there's something about us where we desire to look better than what we truly are. And why is that? On one hand, we want to be confident and project strength and, and that we have control of certain situations and that we're good at what we do and that we have knowledge and knowledge is power. And on the other hand, we want to be, so we want to project confidence, but on the other hand, we want to be humble, right? Because if you're too confident and you're too strong, everybody thinks you're a jerk and nobody wants to be around you, right? But if you're too humble, people will walk right over you and they'll take advantage of you. And so there's this constant way that we try to present ourselves between confidence and humility, strength, uh, boldness, and meekness. And there's this constant thing that we feel every single day. And it's not just a now situation. Look in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. These desires aren't limited to today. Look what Proverbs 20, verse 6 says. Many a man proclaims, so there it is, there's public, I'm proclaiming his own steadfast love. But a faithful man, who can find? Right? Many a person proclaims his own love and loyalty, but where in the world do you find such a person? Right? This, Proverbs, this proverb is 3,000 years old, which means this is a struggle, this is something uh, that spans all cultures and time and human history is this predicament and wrestling with this. And you may sit here today and you're not worried about your looks. You may sit here today and you may be right. You're not worried about your looks. It might not be your looks, but for you it might be some aspect that you are continually presenting publicly that is in stark contrast to who you are privately. And that public presentation of yourself is what we call a public persona, okay? It could be finances, it could be parenting, it could be work, it could be your ethics, it could be your morality, your family, education, virtue, overcommitting, saying yes to everything, undercommitting, saying no to everything, not worrying about death. Whatever it is for you, there's something that we are projecting that you might not even know what it is. But we're projecting in order for all of us to feel that we look better than who and what we truly are. And we base our self-image upon living up to some standard. This is part of what it means to be human, be it your own standard or someone else's standard. And the reason why we do this is because in the Bible we know that we are image bearers. You bear the image of your parent, right? And whether you like it or not, <laughs> khakis, you know, like you bear the image of your mom and dad. And at some point you're like, dang, I'm doing that. And you get older and you see your, the way your dad and it's like, dang, he falls asleep halfway through conversations too. You know, like, dang. <laughs> and all the guys are like, no, nah, man, that's just part of being an old man. You're like, <laughs> You know, but at some point we all bear the image of our parents or our community, our society. At some point we are all image bearers and no matter how hard you try, you are not 100% autonomous. 
You are not an island unto yourself. No matter, so all of us, and also theologically, we know that we are image bearers because God made us in his image. Male and female, he created us in his image and in his likeness. Ultimately, we are image bearers of God. And the way that image bearing works is you live up to that standard. And if you live up to that standard, you feel a sense of what? Confidence, right? You feel a sense of confidence. You're, but you're not humble. But if you don't live up to that standard, you're what? Humble. But what? You're not really confident. But what if there's a way to have an image that truly allows you to be both genuinely confident and humble? Where, what, if there's a, what, if, what if there's a way to, that you can be both confident and humble, bold and meek at the same time? One that allows you to proclaim your own steadfast love, Proverbs 20, verse six, while at the same time being able to say, where in the world do you find someone like this? I often think that if I was uh, wealthy, then I would be confident and humble. Uh, and I'm reminded of this when I'm driving down 59 and I casually look up and I see the Powerball uh, has gone up from 40 million to 400 million. And then it's like, dang, 400 million is a lot of money. I didn't play at 40 million. Uh, 700 million? Dang, nobody won that. 937 million? Hmm. And you start to question your ethics at that point. Because at 40 million, you're like, no, I'm never going to get a Powerball, man. I'm not, I'm not gambling. 900 million? I mean, you know, we could you kind of do some things with that, you know? So, you know it's like it gets to a point where you're like, man, if I just had that money, I could be, man, look, I could be confident. Because, look, I can go to work and I don't care what people say. I can quit this job in a second. But I'd still go to work. I'd be that guy who has like all that money and no one knows, you know? And I'd just like show up at 9.15. Dude, you're supposed to be here at 8. I know. And then you just go on, you know, because you, you don't care. Like, right, you're confident. But then I'll also be that guy who has a Rolls Royce and then I'm pulling up in my, I'll go buy a Ford Pinto just so people know I'm humble. And then I'll take all my blank envelopes and I'll just stuff it with cash. And I'll be that guy who just walks up and like drops it on the front door and leaves and just walks away. And people will see me on the ring and they're like, hey dude, why'd you drop off that money? No, nah, man, that ain't me. You know? Like I'd have the confidence and the humility. Like that's when I see that on the billboard, I'm like, that, that, I could be confident and humble. I, that's what I would do with all that money, right? That's, that's what I look for as a solution. But here's the reality. Do you know who wrote this proverb? Solomon. Solomon was that guy. King Solomon, according to uh, MSN, article that they did in 2017, Solomon was the fifth richest person to ever live. And he had confidence. He had sex, money, power, strength, all the social images that you think of when it comes to being the fifth richest person to have ever lived. And so just to give you an idea of how wealthy and how rich Solomon was, Bill Gates, okay, the owner of MSN, his current net worth is 103 billion. Billion with a B, okay? Solomon in 1 Kings 10, we learn that Solomon for 39 years of his reign received 25 tons of gold every year for 40 years. And they did, MSN did the math and they said what that comes to is just north of, in today's money, two trillion dollars. 
trillion with a, with a T. With a, we're going further into the alphabet here. A T, right? Bill Gates, like, dude, you're like letter number two. Solomon's like letter number 19. Like, he's way down here, right? He's got so much more money. And to give you another perspective, do you know how much money is circulating right now in the United States? Right now, just like, not in this room, like passing around money, but that's being exchanged in sales and just what, what's being circulated right now, today, right now in the United States. $1.7 trillion. And Solomon had more money than everybody in the United States circulating, circulating money. Right now, that's how rich this dude was. $2 trillion. And do you know what the guy who had more money than all of the United States combined says is truly worth having as your public persona and who you are internally? Do you know, you know what word he said? What money? Look at Proverbs, 20, or Proverbs 19, verse 22. We read it earlier. What's he say? What is desired in a man is steadfast love. That's what's desired in a man, is steadfast love. Inside, so your private persona, inside. And then Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims what? His steadfast love. There's his public persona, steadfast love. So he is entrenched with this idea, and the Hebrew word for steadfast love is, is the word hesed. Okay, it's a covenant term. Basically, the best way to define it is loyal love. Look in the context here. You get, to, you get an idea of this. Do you see the way that chapter 20, verse 6, Proverbs 26 ends? Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. And now look at the, line, the last line of, of Proverbs 26. But a faithful man who can find. So that word faithful is parallel to steadfast love. So the idea of hesed is that love is loyal and steadfast and faithful. But notice also how Solomon ends Proverbs 19, verse 22. Look at it. What is desired in a man is steadfast love. Now look how he ends this. And a poor man is better than what? A liar. That seems weird. That seems weird. You would think he would say, what? A poor man is better than a rich man. Right? Different categories there. Or an honest man is better than a liar. But he says what? A poor man is better than a liar. Okay? Now he writes this because this is a proverb. And the way that proverbs function is to get you to think. They are short statements based on long experiences designed to engage your mind and then change your heart. That's what a proverb is. Okay? And that's what he's doing here. He's throwing out one category and another. And it's like, wait, that didn't fit. So we're supposed to slow down and dissect this and think about it. So think about this with me. Generally speaking... Poor man is connected to public image. Generally speaking, it's connected to your appearance and your image, while liar has to do with what? Your relationships, your character, who you are internally, your substance. Poor and rich are categories for public image. If I pull up here in a Maserati, in a three-piece suit, in a diamond watch, you think what? That dude's got money, 
right? I'm a rich man, but you have no way of telling if I am a liar to get that image. You have no way of telling until you get to know me. Hesed, steadfast love, and liar are categories for relationship and substance. And what Solomon's saying is if you have to choose between two choices, having a deflated public persona, a deflated image, and loyal love, or if you have to choose between having a puffed up image and being a liar, go live on the streets. That's what he's saying. It is better to be a person who is loyal and loving, faithful and trustworthy than it is to be a liar. That's how valuable Hesed is. And do you know why? Because in 1 Kings 11, so 1 Kings 10, we realize how rich Solomon is. Do you know what happens in 1 Kings 11? He abandons God. He forsakes God. Solomon turns away from the God of Israel. And do you know why? He was a liar. He was a liar. He appeared loyal and loving, confident and humble to the God of Israel insofar as it only benefited him. And Hesed, loyal, steadfast, faithful love connects you to something greater than all the money circulating in the United States right now, namely knowing and enjoying the God of the Bible. And it's when you get to what the Christians call the gospel. If you, um, I don't want to assume any terms. If you are unfamiliar with what the heck is this room and these curtains and these chairs, we are here about the gospel. So let me explain to you what that uh, idea is. Then and only then, when you understand the gospel, you can be both confident and humble. Because in the gospel, heaven came down to earth so that we could find a steadfast, faithful, loyal man on the earth. Many a man proclaims to be loyal and loving, but it'd be great if we could find someone. You know what it took? Heaven coming down to earth so that we can find someone who is loyal and loving. And in Jesus Christ, God's son, he not only proclaimed his steadfast love, but he performed his steadfast love. And there's a story in Luke 22, if you want to turn to it, Luke 22, verse 31. Um, Luke 22, verse 31. This is a familiar story that uh, if you've been in church, you've seen. But I'll wait for you to get there. Luke 22, verse 31 this is a story where Jesus foretells of Peter's denial. And in Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now let's just stop right there. The you there is in Greek is plural. Okay? Or yes, is y'all. Okay? <laughs> if we could translate it, Simon, Simon, Satan came to me. He demanded to have y'all. He wants to sift y'all like wheat. Now watch what happens in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You can see it there. See, your brothers. 
That's a shift to singular. So what Jesus has said is, Simon, Simon, Satan came to me. He wanted to have y'all. He wants to sift y'all as weak as wheat. But Simon, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What's Jesus doing here? Sifting is a long process. I've never sifted wheat in all my life. I had to YouTube this. <laughs> and even then, it's probably still not even accurate to what it was back then. But just type in sifting wheat and you'll see this little guy with a little basket and they cut down the stalks. They bind them up together. They crush it. They shake, shake, shake. But here, here's the process. You gather up a group, a, a stalk, right? You, and then... Back then, you would throw it on the ground and there was this process of crush, crush, crush until you start to break apart the stalks and then you pick up the grains and then you shake, 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 shake and you sift it out and, and then you would throw it up in the air and the air would throw away the dross and then you'd have more wheat granules come down. You take it and you shake, 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 shake and throw it up and sift, right? And then all, you would take all this big stalk of wheat and you would get it down to its most basic kernel. The most basic who that stalk of wheat is. The picture is one of taking a long stalk and winnowing down to its most basic component, the wheat granules. And Peter's, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has come to me to take all of you down to who you truly are. He wants to get rid of all of your outward appearances. And he wants me to see, because he knows he's been messing with your life the whole time. He wants me to see how jacked up you truly, really are. He wants me, he wants to sift you that week so that when I see that you are not truly who you have said you've been these last three years, I won't go accomplish my mission and die for you. Because who would die for someone that would actually be who you really are, Peter? Peter, I have prayed for you personally that your faith may not fail. What is that? What is Jesus doing when he says, Peter, I've prayed for you personally. What's he doing? He's proclaiming his what? Steadfast love. But I've prayed for you, Peter. He's making a proclamation. I've done this for you. <laughs> right? But weeder, what? Weeder. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> Wheat, Peter, okay? All right? Peter, but what is, this is over, we're done. What is, no public persona here. What is, what, is Peter's, what is Peter's response? What does he say? Lord, I will what? Die for you. I will die for you, Lord. I'm ready to go to prison and I will die for you. And what is, what is that? It's Peter's public persona, right? And what happens to Peter Verse 54, Luke twenty-two fifty-four. 54. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, just meek, humble little servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with Jesus. But Peter what? Denied it. Saying, woman, I don't know him. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> A little later, someone else saw him and said, 
you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. Woman, I'm not. Man, I'm not. <laughs> All these image bearers, he's telling them not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him. He's got a Galilean accent. He, he too's Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Jesus had predicted that the rooster would crow three times. Peter, if you don't know the story, Peter would actually deny him. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Why? He'd been sifted. And who he really was had been brought down to that moment in front of a slave girl. What is Peter? He's a liar. Right? But Jesus, what does he do? He not only proclaims his steadfast love, but what's he do? He goes and performs his steadfast love. And all while Peter has been sifted and brought down to the liar like Solomon, what does Jesus do? He performs his steadfast love and he goes to the cross. Not for the Peter who catches fish and walks on water, but for the Peter who has been sifted down to who he truly is inside. Not the public persona, but who he is inside. And Jesus goes and he says, I'll die for that. God, God didn't send his son to die for the best part of you. He came to die for who you really, truly are. And if if this is what marks your identity, not your finances, not your parenting, not your work, not your morality, not your relationships, not your family, not your education, not your virtue, not overcoming, undercoming, not worrying about death. If you let this gospel shape you, you'll be more confident and more humble in ways you never thought you could imagine. And you won't have to present yourself any particular way because the standard, you don't have to live up to it. The standard came down and was sifted and crushed for you. Jesus turned again. Jesus said to Peter, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter can only do so if he's got the resources to be both bold and humble. And in the gospel, he's been declared bold. He's been declared what? Perfect. He's been, de he's been declared righteous. That's what God does. He gives guilty sinners like you and I, people who, who are liars at our core. He takes our, our sin and he credits to us the righteousness and perfection of his son. And he does that by faith alone, not by anything that you've done. And he declares guilty sinners perfect by faith alone in Christ alone. And then he credits to those guilty sinners, the righteousness, and get this, the hesed, the covenant faithfulness, the loyal love, steadfast faithfulness of his son to me. What? What? So at the same time, I can be, get this, perfect and a sinner a saint and a sinner, confident and humble. 
And this is why Jesus says that Peter can, in fact, have confidence to turn again because in the gospel, he's a sinner whom God has saved. And so he can, in fact, have the humility to what? Do you, can you imagine what it's like for Peter to go back to his brothers? Can you imagine what that was like for him to go back to the disciples? I would go back thinking, well, you guys all like jetted too. And they would be like, yeah, but we didn't deny Jesus in front of a little 10-year-old girl. Can you imagine the humility that that would have to? So the gospel has to be able to give that kind of confidence and that kind of humility that you can then turn and say to someone who you may have wronged or let down, I blew it. But let me strengthen you here. Because the resources aren't coming from inside of you. And what this means for us as a church is that our public persona isn't one of morality, conservatism, our tight, strict values. It isn't even one of religion. What this means for us is that we can present ourselves both privately and publicly as a family of missionary servants. Let me tell you why. We can present ourselves as family why? Because God loves us just the way that we are. We can present ourselves as family because God loves us just, dad loves us just the way we are. And so we can be confident, right? I, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a thing going around Facebook right now. Religion says, dang, I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel says, dang, I messed up. I need to call dad, yeah. right? And that's what family is. God loves me just the way I am so I can have confidence. But we're also missionaries. God loves me too much to leave me the way that I am. And so I can have humility. Because he's going to change me as he sends me out. And we're a family of missionary servants. And so as servants, we're confident and we're humble people because we don't have to look truly better than what we truly are. No pretending. No pretending with our struggles. Just confidence and humility, safety in the gospel over time. That's what this means. We're not just throwing out catchphrases of family of missionary servants. That's just not a buzzword, man. That's, this, is, this, is, this is life and death. This is good news. This is the best news in the universe. And people are starving for this kind of community. People are starving for this kind of environment to just breathe in that dad loves me just the way I am, but he loves me too much to leave me that way. I'm fine with that. I'd love to hear that from God. We take that for granted in this room. We do. We take that for granted. But as we've started our, our, missional, our neighborhood group, missional community, whatever it is you want to call it, I have noticed that as we get to know neighbors and uh, we have conversations, that is not the way people think. Don't assume the gospel. Don't assume what you hear uh, on Sunday in here is what other people think whenever they hear God. It's not. And the way that they're gonna see that, the way that they're gonna see that, and this is why we have neighborhood groups, is not by getting people into a Sunday school Okay, let me tell you this. Sunday school, which is great, okay? I'm about to lose maybe some people in here. Hear me say this. Sunday school is great and good, but do you know what Sunday school was? It was a missionary endeavor. 
In the 1740s, a man, a man named uh, Richard Reich, who's an Anglican pastor, in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, okay, kids worked six days a week. And they had poor labor conditions. And they worked to provide for their uh, families, Okay, and this guy looked out and he said, what is a missionary opportunity for this culture right now? These kids are working, which means what? They're not in school and they don't know how to read. I know how we can get them to read right here. Here's a book and we can teach people how to read right here by using this book. So what we'll do is we'll, uh, they're not working when? Sunday mornings. So we'll do School, because they want to have school. They want to learn. So we'll have Sunday school. And we'll just find regular people that can take a Bible and teach these kids how to read. And do you know, at first, that was objected to? Because the church thought, hmm, that's gonna take away from family time. There's just tension, always, with mission. Always is. But they did it. And do you know that over, uh, I think it was like, maybe two or three years later, 1.25 million kids were in Sunday school and they had learned how to read. Do you know what has happened as the Industrial Revolution? There's like stages of the Industrial Revolution. We're 200 some odd years in to this. That was the 1740s, this is 2019. We're still in the Industrial Revolution. This is like the fourth wave of it, right? You've got uh, the 1740s, maybe late 1800s, early 1900s. You shift into the digital part of that the digital part of the industrial revolution. And now we have the fourth wave, which is kind of like Alexa. Okay? It's augmented reality. It's virtual reality. There's always a need, as it was in the 1740s, for biblical literacy. That will always be a strand that runs through. Always. People don't know the Bible. They need to know the Bible. We need to always be put, putting gospel in front of people. Always constant. But what has changed, people aren't coming to Sunday school. You know why? It worked. People are literate. Most people, I'm not saying all, there's still a need for education in America. Don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is most people are literate. People who live around here in Southwest Houston are generally affluent, have some kind of education level. But you know what their lives look like? They move here to Houston, why? For opportunity. They live here in Houston. Why? Because there's good money. Not because it's pretty. Okay? Public persona. Okay? <laughs> but, but there's opportunity here. There's great opportunity here. But you know what ends up happening? They work all the time. And they have kids. And they drive in. They buy a house, which I cannot believe. I mean, like, the cost of housing now. They drive into those houses, and they have to pay to keep those houses up. They drive into those homes, they get up early, they drive out, commute all day, drop their kids off, pick them up, come back, drive back in that garage, shut the garage door, hey Alexa, tell me blah. And their conversations are with a what? Machine. Or they get their husband, their spouse, and they stare at them. And that's the only community and relationships they have. And what we've got to see is the missionary need right now is a genuine need for community. And we have the resources to come and to say we have a community that is what? Confident and humble.
So don't hear me say Sunday school's bad. Don't hear me say churches are doing that. I'm just saying, if we're gonna meet the genuine needs, if we're gonna do like what Richard Reich did and said, here's a specific people group, how can we orient our lives around and we'll create, because that's become a program now in churches. How can we now look at people and say, how can we foster and create a sense of community? And in that, let questions come up and we answer them with gospel. That's constantly, and, and as we get to, and we've got our neighborhood group, we're praying for a couple people, constantly. And you know what the Lord's done? <laughs> he's, he's brought them to where four of the ladies went out to go eat dinner. And the wife says, this is the best time I've had in a long time. <laughs> best time. And then we have a movie night. Golly, why are you just gonna waste movie nights? And we watch Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Like there's a dude playing with like, oh man, uh, here's a remote control lawnmower that's about to run over the kids. And it's like, whoa, wouldn't that be crazy if that existed one day? It does now, today. Like you can, you can buy those things now. And it's like a Roomba, but it's for your yard. Like that's, the, that's, that's where we are. That's the kind of shift that has taken, you and I grew up watching Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Like that's a reality now. It's like Jetsons, all right? That's, that's, where, that's where we're headed. It's not slowing down. But you know what happens? You know what happens? Where's the face-to-face -face connection? And we're sitting out in Pat Smith's front yard and uh, the people that we're loving, they're not projects, they're people. And they said, we'll come only if you don't what? Proselytize us. <laughs> Is that the image we have? Bait and switch? It, are, are we doing things just so that we can try to fill seats? Or do we have confidence and humility that we can say to that person, you know what? I wish to God you'd be a Christian, but if you never come to faith, I'll still love you. And I'll be here to answer your questions and I'll walk through it with you. What if we had that type of community? What if we had that type of public persona? Let's ask the Lord that he give that to us. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. You know who we are at our deepest point. You know who we are inwardly. And uh, you so loved us that you gave your only son and so we pray this morning that we would believe and that we would trust. And Lord, this identity that you've given to us as family of missionary servants, Father, that we would truly live that out and that the steadfast love of the Lord, which endures forever, his faithfulness and his loyalty would guide us in our relationships. And that Lord, that we would grow from one degree of glory to another by your grace and kindness. It's in Jesus' name, amen.